The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 42 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So as always, before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So it was an absolute pleasure having Chris Kenworthy on the show with us last week. To get a whole hour with someone who has so much experience and, and, and has so much tenure in, in the industry as he does, was just so absolutely fantastic. And there's no other cybersecurity podcast that I know where you can go and listen to someone of Kenworthy's caliber and experience and ask him questions for a full hour. We could just basically ask him anything we want for a full hour and get his full attention it was fantastic. I mean, typically when someone like Kenworthy is interviewed, it's for a TV or a major periodical or you just get a few minutes with the guy and, and maybe get to ask him a few questions, maybe a reporter ask him a few questions and that is basically all over. Uh, that's not what happened and it's, it's, it's just a fantastic episode. We covered a variety of, of different topics with Chris last week, including getting his take on the overcrowded cybersecurity market, how the market is rapidly changing. We talked about emerging technologies that are producing more startups with more innovative and disruptive technologies coming into the market. And we talked about a lot, a lot about the cybersecurity startup space and what the cybersecurity startup companies need to do to survive in this extremely competitive environment. So Kenworthy also gave us his expert opinion on how some of these emerging technologies are introducing new risk into corporate environments. And I know that's been a big topic of discussion with a lot of different people and what cybersecurity professionals should really be doing about it. And we just got back to starving the start, Solving the startup problem, like what startups should do to address the problem of overwhelmingly required managed services for their products, which I hear people complain about all the time. Chris gave us his comments on that. And, and he also talked about what it means to be a cybersecurity engineer. A cybersecurity engineer, in my estimation, is one of the most, if not the most, desired position by companies in the most in need position, I guess, in companies that, that they need these engineers to come into their environments and help them stand up these technologies and manage these technologies. And this is a very, very demanding 
talent market around the entire globe, not just in the United States, but globally. So I know a lot of listeners out there are going to be interested in this. Ken Worley gave us his, his take on his vast experience with over seven cybersecurity startups. He opined on how he, was, how he has become so successful, and he gave some real-world expert advice to professionals seeking a career in the cybersecurity industry. So it was a great show. If you missed it, you definitely want to track it down. Chris Kenworthy, one of the most successful cybersecurity executives in the world on last week's episode. That's episode number 41 of Task Force 7 Radio. So how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, just like I do every week, I'll tell you. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the very own show's very own website at Task47Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world, and VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Just check us out. TF7 Radio Playback in your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. And I've seen a lot of subscriptions lately. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So I have a special treat for our audience tonight. Tonight, we have Eric Huber on the show with us, and Eric's the Vice President of International Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, otherwise affectionately known in the industry as the NW3C. He's the former law enforcement officer, just like myself. Our audience seems to favor cybercrime episodes of Task Force 7 Radio, so we're going to get a lot of cybercrime mixed in to our episodes, and he's got a broad experience in digital forensics, incident response, fraud in cybercrime, and he's gained that through years and years and years of experience in the advanced sectors of finance and defense. So Eric is a sought-after speaker. Uh, he's an educator. He writes a lot about cybercrime. He writes a lot about digital forensics on his award-winning AFOD blog, and he holds many professional degrees and certifications, including an MBA from the University of Florida. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. No, I appreciate being on the show. It's been, uh, uh, I've been listening to it for a very long time. You're doing a fantastic job. Who knew that you were a master broadcaster on top of everything else? <laughs> I don't know. It just came up. Some people ask me, you know, how did you get to do that? I don't know. I just started doing it. I said, you know, one day I'm just going to start it. And we didn't even, we didn't advertise the show. I didn't really even tell anybody because I didn't know I was really going to do it till the last minute and just kind of kicked it off. And I'm kind of learning as I go, but it's been fun. I appreciate your support, man. I know we go back a long way. But I'm going to, I'm going to, but simple, first of all, let's, let's set the tone here. We all know that the Seminoles rule the world. Oh, okay? yeah. We all know that. So I, I want to do my best to completely <laughs> overlook the fact that you're a Florida Gator, because I know I've got a lot of Seminole uh, fans out there that listen to this, and I just want to set the tone here. I uh, forgot, as, as yeah. I forgot you went to clown college. Yeah, that's oh, oh, <laughs> it's war. It's on. It's war. It's, look, <laughs> in the University of Florida, I'm sure it's a fine institution. It's a bad guy. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So, Eric, look, you got a really interesting career, man. I just glossed over your cybersecurity experience and background. I mean, it's pretty extensive. Um, let, can you tell us in your own words? Tell us a little bit about your experiences and what you've done in your cybersecurity uh, career and what you've learned. People are interested. 
Sure. I mean, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was actually a police officer in the Midwest. And uh, one day I just got tired of living the Jerry Springer show. And I really wanted to do high tech crime investigation. And as you know, from being in that job, you know, certain slots, you have to sit and get seniority and that sort of thing. So I decided to uh, make my way out into the private sector. So I did uh, work as a consultant uh, in uh, digital forensics and incident response and electronic discovery. Uh, did that for a while, learned quite a bit. Uh, Consulting is a great way to learn a lot in a little bit of time. Um, so I decided to, uh, I was getting married and I uh, wanted to actually be at home every once in a while and actually see the person I was marrying. So I went <laughs> and uh, got uh, I got a job with Honeywell International, which is a large defense contractor and conglomerate. Uh, and that's really great because I got the job just being a uh, uh, really broad IT security investigator. I got to do complex cyber investigations, uh, internal threat stuff, also external um, investigations you would call hacking investigations. So doing it in the defense uh, sector, plus with a really large employer like that, really a, a lot of times it felt like policing the internet because those uh, large corporate networks feel so large. Uh, ended up taking over a job uh, there where I, I, I was promoted to running the team that I was uh, Serving on, uh, built a, a large international team uh, that basically did the same work, uh, insider threat, uh, incident response, uh, so I had a really good run there, and then uh, some guy named George uh, came and tapped me on the shoulder, and I uh, came, went to work for you uh, at J.P. Morgan Chase, and actually before then I was teaching a little bit for the Sands Institute, uh, started to do my blog. Uh, if you go to it, afodblog.com, where I do my blogging on a bunch of different stuff. Um, came to work for you, and uh, that was, you know, I, I, it's funny. <laughs> I remember you saying, it's like, look, you know, it's, you know, when you first got here, they came to you and said, it's going to take you two years to learn all this stuff. And I remember it was like the first couple of days you came to me and you said, you know, when I first got here, it's gonna oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn it in six months. And you looked at me and it's like, it's going to take you a couple of years. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it is. Because it's, it's, you know, it's an even bigger environment. And, you know, Chief, right? is, yeah, oh my gosh, it's this fantastic organization. But it feels like you're policing the, uh, the financial sector because it's so international and a quarter million employees all over the place. So I ran the... Uh, uh, the high-tech investigations team for you for a while that was, again, insider threat and incident response and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, you know, someone tapped you on the shoulder and you got your big job. And then uh, as to console myself, since you were gone, uh, I actually had the opportunity and I was offered to say, look, you know, we've got all the stuff going on in the electronic crime space. We know that you're good for, for cyber investigations. Can you come back and uh, can you work on uh, electronic crime? So I spent probably the last three years um, working on electronic crimes uh, as far as just global uh, international fraud rings and how they were working with law enforcement. And that was... Uh, kind of stepping out of my comfort zone for a while, but it was really exciting. It was one of the reasons why I was excited to, learn, uh, to, to, to go to work at J.P. Morgan because I knew I would be able to learn things about payment systems and fraud. And um, yeah, as you know, I mean, when you're in an environment like that, I was sitting actually in a location where um, we had the commercial banking people um, just a couple floors above me. So I was up there every other day bugging the poor ACH people, learning how things worked and building relationships and learning how money moves internationally and uh, um, just all sorts of things. It was a great educational experience. And then late last year, uh, uh, National White Collar Crime Center approached me and said, hey, 
we got an opportunity. We'd like you to come and uh, take over our uh, our cybercrime uh, unit and uh, start running that. Also, like you to work with the, the CEO and COO and work and helping us figure out. You know, let's look five years over the horizon and position ourselves where we need to be, what sort of threats are coming up, how do we need to educate state and local law enforcement. And uh, that's what NW3C does. Uh, we're state and local. Uh, basically, we are a nonprofit, been around for about 40 years. Uh, we are largely funded by the Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Assistance. And if you're playing NW3C bingo, our, uh, our, you're probably center square is SLTT. Um, state, local, tribal, and territorial. So our job is to help uh, train and provide technical assistance to state, local, tribal, territorial, law enforcement, prosecutors, regulatory agencies, and cybercrime, financial crime, law enforcement, intelligence. So I've been doing that since late last year and really enjoying it. So, and, uh, you know, we've been talking and now here we are. Hey, so tell me, you know, a lot of people that listen to the show, they ask me all the time, how do you pivot? How do you pivot and transfer skill sets that you currently have to get into the cybersecurity space. And in your instance, just like me, eventually you, you went, I went to the Secret Service first after being a police officer and then transferred into the finance sector, but you went right from finance to being right into the fence. And so, but it was, a, it was, it was sort of a technical job. Obviously, you had a, a, a cybersecurity uh, position there. How did you get the skill sets that you needed to transfer from becoming a law enforcement officer into a cybersecurity job with a defense company? Yeah, it, it's a lot of it's self-taught. I mean, a lot of people in digital forensics and incident response world were, were self-taught. I mean, now you can go and you can get degrees um, and, you know, people will teach you stuff. There's more stuff out there. But at the time we were doing this, and I say we because there's a lot of us that uh, were doing it during the same era and in just different situations. It's like you just get passionate about something and you decide you teach yourself on your own. You know, I didn't know that much about networking when I left law enforcement. So one of the things I do to educate myself is uh, uh, the Cisco network certifications were fantastic. I, I made myself pass the CCNA test and the CCDA and all these different things where I knew it's like, okay, I'm going to do all this self-taught stuff. I have this test I have to take at the end, do a lot of reading. So if you're passionate and you want to educate yourself, there's a lot of stuff out there. And increasingly more now, uh, 20 years later or so, it seems like when I've been, I've been doing it it's probably that long. Um, so a lot of it, it's just if you have the drive, if you have the, uh, the ability, you know, you really want to learn. And then part of it after that is just networking, right? You, you've got your skill set. You just have to do networking. And, and learn who are the hiring managers, make those connections, and have somebody give you that shot. Where then, once you're in an organization, you know, once I joined uh, either you know Honeywell International or J.P. Morgan Chase, I, I used what I learned to get into those organizations. But now the learning starts all over again, where you're not only learning about that organization, but now you're exposed to all this cool technology and all these people who are smarter than you. So you just go ahead and take. You know, just take that advantage, grab it with both hands, and just start learning as much as you can. So you, if you're passionate and you, you do, um, you're good at teaching yourself and you just get out there and start talking to people, good things will happen. So I think, you know, I, get, I, I totally agree with you. And I think it really matters. And what, what are you doing today? So a lot of, I, I hear from risk, risk professionals, you know, how do I get into the cybersecurity space? Sometimes audit professionals, how do I get into the cybersecurity space? Of course, law, I get a lot of inquiries from law enforcement. And it seems like just, if you just get, um, if you just acquire some of those uh, uh, 
forensic skills and those the yep. cyber crime investigation skills, some of those the, the background skills you need to do that. You already have these interviewing skills and these sort of people skills that you've developed in your law enforcement career. And then you just build upon that and train. Even when I went to J.B. Morgan, I mean, first I was in audit. Then I was in security, and then I was in technology. It was a, it was a, it was a process. It yeah. was constantly pivoting all the time, constantly learning and build upon what you what you have to get to where you want to be uh, in the cybersecurity space to take advantage of the opportunities in the industry. And so, I just think people really, really like that. I mean, what was it like to transfer from defense? into finance what was the what you know what differences did you see did you see cultural differences and and how did that transformation go Oh, yeah. No, it was terrifying. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I mean, it was, those first couple of days, I'm like, what did you do? What did you get me involved in? But it was fantastic. But it's different. I mean, so when I went from the defense contractor, it was uh, Honeywell International is very much like an engineering-focused thing. So you're used to dealing with engineers and how engineers think. And, of course, you know, we work for attorneys and that sort of thing when we're doing investigations. But when you go to J.P. Morgan Chase, now you've got – I mean, I thought it was type A personalities and the defense sector. You know, I started out in Jersey City, so I started out pretty close to, I mean, that's the intergalactic headquarters is, you know, 270 Park, and I was in Jersey City and all over those different uh, locations in that area and meeting different people, and it's just getting used to the culture, and it's just um, financial organizations like that, they just... Um, they attract so many driven people that you've got a couple choices. Either you're going to keep up with these folks and learn with them, or you're going to start sinking. So, you know, on our team and the teams that you built, you filled your teams with a bunch of type A people. And um, it's been, uh, so it's, it's, it's always some sort of culture shock. I mean, even when I came here to NW3C, it's a different culture, but you have to basically come in with the understanding that, you are not going to change the culture, right? I'm not going to go in there and change a culture of 250,000 people. You just have to learn and listen and start contributing as fast as you can. And you know, pretty early in our tenure, you know, it's not a well-kept state secret, we had London Whale. I think I was there, what, maybe six, six right. months before we had yeah. London Whale. And that was like, what, six months of both our lives? Um, so, you know, just take advantage of things like that. I learned an immense amount during that investigation because we had to. So you just look at it as an opportunity, understand it. It's okay to be, uh, it's okay to be a little afraid, a little intimidated, but uh, you know, rise to the challenge. Uh, you're right. At the time, it really was the A team. I mean, you know, oh, it's a great team. Danny Smith, Pageler, Tom Pageler, yeah, all those <laughs> I mean, guys that you brought right. in are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, total rocks. I mean, they're all CISOs and partners now. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, Paul Jackson and you know JF Legault and all those people are you know some stayed, but most are you know it's just incredible. So people like to hear about cybercrime on these episodes. Every time I do a cybercrime episode on Task Force Seven Radio, I get a lot of listeners. And and you have a law enforcement background. You've obviously done a lot. Uh, obviously done a lot of investigations in the cybercrime space. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your job today in, in, at the National White Collar Crime Center and what you're doing over there now. So there's a couple things I'm doing. The, 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 the strategic thing is you know, helping figure out the center where we need to be to position over the horizon, to look over the threat horizon and say, okay, well, what state and local law enforcement can have to deal with? And we deal with federal law enforcement too. We talk with them a lot. So that's part of it. The other part of it is more on the operational side, just running the day-to-day -day operations. And I really good staff works for me, so I don't have to do as much on the day-to-day -day operation side because I have fantastic directors and managers. Um, but then it's also just, you know, delivering what we're doing. So we do, uh, it just we teach law enforcement about everything. Macintosh forensics, Windows forensics, we've got a really cool chip-off class. Um, we're increasingly starting to sell, actually, to private international sector, too. 
Um, but a lot of what we're looking at right now is things like, you know, okay, you know, drones are a thing. So I've got a, one of my, one of my in-house nerds is passionate about drones. Um, one of our really big strategic initiatives right now is blockchain technology because that's, that's here. And generally when I'm speaking, uh, I am speaking at various conferences, uh, child exploitation conferences, high tech crimes conferences, just anywhere. Uh, there's been a pretty big demand just going in and teaching people about what virtual currency is, what sort of crimes associated with it. Uh, you know, business email compromise, right? We do that too. In fact, someday we're going to get a blockchain flavored business email compromise scam. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of what we're doing is looking at the convergence of technology and financial crime. Uh, you know, we do the basic digital forensic stuff, but even that is uh, everything. It's just funny. One of our jokes now when we talk about cybercrime is inside is it's like the joke is we just call it crime now, right? Because no matter what the crime is, there's probably going to be some sort of hook to it. Um, right. Because, you know, everyone has a mobile device in their hand. That's right. That's right. So yeah. it's like you go and do, you know, a normal burglary or something. It's like, fine. You know, the detective is going to, when you talk to digital forensics people at, when I first started, when you talk to law enforcement digital forensics people, it was almost 100% just computers coming across in the digital forensics lab. Now it's more you talk to these these folks and it's like 80, 20, 70, 30, where it's just mobile device. I mean, just all sorts of mobile devices because these are handheld computers. And as we teach people, it's like mobile devices are spy devices. You know, they're keeping track of all the GPS stuff. They're keeping track of all the locations. You're communicating with people. So there's all these devices there where if it's not crypto or something like that where it's explicitly cyber, there's still going to be a cyber hook to it. So it's all of those sort of things. Um, you know, IoT is going to be, you know, it's a big thing. I mean, everything's being connected. Uh, we're concerned about, you know, automotive security and that sort of thing. Because now with smart cars and 5G networks coming and smart cities, you're going to have an immense amount of data rolling around on wheels. One, that's an information security issue because, you know, these are mobile computer devices. And two, there's going to be a law enforcement aspect to that. All right, the car was used in the crime. What sort of information can we get off it? So it's all that sort of stuff, which is why this job is really cool. Cool. Very cool. So look, we're going to take some time out to go to a commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk about cryptocurrencies. And I know you're doing a lot of work in this space. The, uh, the, the audience is very interested in this topic. So when we come back, I want to keep the cybersecurity discussion going around cryptocurrencies. Sound good? Great. Fantastic. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much needed and much awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, Eric Huber. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Vice President of International and Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, Eric Huber. So, Eric, let's jump right into the cri- cryptocurrency stuff I mentioned on the first segment of the show. Our audience loves this topic. Let's, uh, as always, let's, let's start out like we always do with, with a topic like this, and that is from the ground up. So, what exactly is a virtual currency? Okay, so it's, it, it's kind of a broad category. So the, the history of virtual currency actually dates back. Um, there was people actually talking about it and researching the idea back in 1983. Uh, you even had what's called Digicash based in, based in uh, it was basically back in 1990 is the first one comes into play. Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It, 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 it lingers for a while, but it was almost an idea ahead of its time. So then you see things coming up, basically, the, the dot-com era comes up, and then you see e-gold comes out of it in, like, about 1996, where it's a digital currency. It's centralized, and 
backed by gold, and then eventually you get Liberty Reserve, which you may have dealt with in your Secret Service career. That's about 2006, where it's like, okay, you can take dollars and euros and turn them into Liberty Reserve dollars or euros, which was fine, but they were very centralized. Bad guys started using them, so they get shut down by the U.S. government. So fast forward to about 2008, and you get now the first bit of technology. This is the blockchain technology. So when we talk about virtual currency, there's all sorts of different types of virtual currency even today. So we'll talk about the blockchain, the technology, but I mean, things like, um, you know, when I do these presentations, I tell people, it's like, I, I fly Southwest Airlines a lot, so Southwest Rapid Rewards, that's a virtual currency, right? If you're like Marriott points or Hilton points, that's a virtual currency. It's centralized. You do something, they give you these points, then you can exchange them for in Southwest. You can do it for flights, but you can also buy gift cards with it, use it at discounts and things outside the Southwest ecosystem. You saw like Second Life with Linden Dollars. So there's different virtual currencies, but the really hot one right now is blockchain technology. So um, you've got virtual currency, and um, below that you have the technology, which is blockchain technology. And blockchain, it, it's, it's actually fairly simple at the high level. It's when you start going into the crypto where things get a bit complicated. But at a high level, basically, it's, you know, it's a ledger. And a ledger is basically, it's like I give you money, you give me money. It just the ledger shows how money is being transacted between different people. With blockchain, it's a distributed ledger. So when we used to have with these virtual currencies this centralized thing where maybe the ledger is just sitting on a database or a bunch of databases that are controlled by a, a particular institution or a particular individual. With a distributed ledger, let's say you've got you know 100 computers as part of, you know we'll use Bitcoin because that's the classic example. Let's say you've got 100 computers out there with the Bitcoin software on it, well, that's 100 copies of that ledger out there. So if one of those devices goes away, there's still 99 versions of that ledger out there, and they're all syncing up, and there's different ways to do that. And that has really captured people's imagination because with Bitcoin, you've got that other layer below the technology, which is the protocol. Bitcoin is a, uh, you know, it's just a type of blockchain technology, and it has its own coin, Bitcoin, and that's being used as uh, being used as a currency. So we can talk about some of the other different variations, but at a really high level, it's just basically taking the ideas that folks had used before and they had tried before and doing it in a decentralized manner so that it's it's much more robust, it's less centralized, and it just continues on and you don't have the risk where you have it under one centralized authority. You mentioned Second Life. I mean, is that still around? I mean, it is still around. Yeah, no, I was actually looking at it the other day. It's funny, for a while there... Um, Everyone was thinking that it was because Second Life is interesting. It is still is, is interesting. It, it's the convergence of kind of virtual reality, and then uh, you know it had its own. It's got, it still has its own economy and payment system. Right. I mean, that used to be like some out of control big thing. Yeah, no, I mean, but, I mean, I but is it still as big as it used to be? I don't know how big it is now, but you know, I was actually at the website a couple of days ago, and it looks you know it looks cool. I just haven't been on it. I you know I was researching it back in. 
uh, even before I was at J.P. Morgan Chase, because the, one of the ideas was, you know, there were some nation states that actually had virtual, um, you know, virtual embassies there. Businesses were showing up with, with virtual uh, storefronts, and it was just interesting to see. It's like, okay, how is this going to play out? You can now have you use virtual currency, London dollars. You can use it to buy property. You can use it to buy, like, clothing for your avatar. So it's still there. I just don't know what, you know, what they're doing with it these days. I mean, you mentioned e-gold, and I had flashbacks to the Secret Service days. I Figured you did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my Operation Firewall, man, and it was Eagle was the the preferred virtual currency of organized crime groups back then. Yep. What what, what is the preferred virtual currency now of organized crime groups? I mean, so do they have a preferred? They yes. So it's 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 short answer is the Bitcoin. Longer answer is they're starting to move into what's called Monero, which is the privacy coin. So the, the thing to understand with um, where we're at with blockchain technology now is we're in the infrastructure phase, where it's it's still pretty much the wild west. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of virtual a lot of virtual currencies firing up. A lot of these blockchains firing up. There's a lot of venture capital going in that right. So everyone's trying to get. Everyone wants to be. It's like the dot-com thing. It's like everyone wants to be Google. No one wants to be pets.com, and no one knows what's that going to be. But, you know, Bitcoin has got this huge first-mover advantage. And because of that, when you go to a digital currency exchange, you're almost always going to be able to exchange fiat currency and buy Bitcoin. So getting Bitcoin is very easy. So the, 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 the criminals, especially in the, the dark web, they still like to use Bitcoin because it's just the least amount of friction. It's like you need somebody to pay ransom on a ransomware, um, some sort of extortion scam. It's easier to get people to take their fiat currency, turn it into Bitcoin, and send it to the bad guys. Now, what they tend to use when they are um, doing business with themselves or things like when they're doing these, the ransomware, or we can talk about crypto jacking. They really like a virtual currency called Monero. And Monero is a really neat uh, bit of currency in that it's, um, whereas Bitcoin, that ledger is public. I can go to any sort of free, but you know, you can just, just Google for Bitcoin Explorer, you're going to see any number of things that will allow you just to go and see all the different transactions on the, ledger, on the ledger. The Bitcoin ledger is public. You can trace all the transactions. There's a bunch of very nice tools that will do it, some that are paid and do it very well and add a bunch of open source to it, but it's easy to, to trace. Monero, and there's other versions, Monero is what's called a privacy coin, and there's all sorts of different versions of privacy coin and all sorts of different uh, development going on there. But long and the short of it is Monero, that ledger is now private. So if I'm a police officer and I want to see the money moving around, I can't really see it move around because the ledger is private. So they really like using Monero for that reason. The problem is um, because it's just the infrastructure phase and people are basically building out the, the infrastructure as far as the hardware and the software and the exchange technology. Um, it's just really hard for your average victim to go from Fiat to Monero to get it to them. I mean, it's hard enough to get people right now to, it's still the digital wallets aren't, but there's a lot of advancement going on the digital wallets. I think they're really cool, but for the normal person who has never dealt with Bitcoin before or, or blockchain technology, and they just had their machine, let's say, taken over by ransomware, right, it's right. much, much easier to walk them through sending Bitcoin. They would prefer Monero and I'm sure they'll move towards that. But yeah, they like the privacy coins. So how, you know, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but it, how concerned should investors be that invest in Bitcoin and Monero and, and these types of technologies when you have uh, cyber organized crime groups and other criminals 
using it for nefarious purposes. I mean, how concerned should they be about this? Well, I mean, as far as concern, as far as one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the Hurley problems with Bitcoin was that since it was used by bad guys and you had instance that splashed in the news as far as bad guys using it for bad things and exchanges being dodgy, it gave it a reputation as being the, the, the kind of this black market digital currency. And, and one of the things I think that really helped it was when Bitcoin went up to about 20,000 right, USD or so, people then started realizing, oh, wait, it's, it's not just bad guy money. It's actually this really cool technology. And people started to invest in it that maybe they shouldn't have because it's one of those things where don't invest in something you don't understand. But it, there's a couple different things. One is if you have money in the cryptocurrency, you have to make sure that you don't have a lot of the safety that you have with, like for example, when we were J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Let's say you get $10,000 in the bank account. Somebody, not that they ever did it, but let's say somebody, let's say it's an online account compromise. Or I was about to say, it's like, let's say they broke into the bank and stole your stuff. So they're not going to do that. But let's say it's an online account compromise, right? They take over your credentials, which you know, bad guys try and do all the time. They steal the $10,000 out of your account. Fine, you know, we, we do the investigation. The bank will make you whole because it was, you know, we're in the lost position. Fine. With Bitcoin, let's say you've got $10,000 on a ledger and a Bitcoin ledger. Somebody gets your private key or they compromise a digital currency exchange. They move that $10,000 worth of, you know, dirt virtual currency out. You're cooked. You are not getting that money back because that is, it's not like ACH where you can do a recall or you know, wire or we do a swift message saying, hey, you know, please, you know, please, uh, suspend this account so we can get the recovery process underway, you're actually going to lose the money. So there's a lot of uh, technology as far as you know, storing your private keys. You know, I, I've got, I use a, a hardware wallet for my crypto stuff. I've got backup stuff sitting in a, a safe deposit box. But there's been plenty of stories when you know, Bitcoin hit, let's say 20,000, people were like, oh my gosh, I had you know, millions of dollars in this laptop, which I threw out and couldn't find. It's like, that money's gone, right? You lose control of your private key, you're, you're cooked. So you should be concerned from the standpoint that you really need to think about what security you're doing. Um, and that's why there's a big debate as far as, okay, if you're investing in cryptocurrency and you're doing a lot of money, you know, how do you, do you do something where do you trust that digital currency exchange to keep your private key? Or is it something where you really need to take that private key, put it on some sort of hardware device, do cold storage? So uh, it, it's kind of unforgiving right now. It, it's interesting. It's really cool, but it is it is an unforgiving technology. If you screw up with those private keys, you are in trouble. Why are people calling cryptocurrencies Internet 2.0? So, all right, there's 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 two there's two different ways that you look at this, and there's there's one is the technology, and one is sort of the economics of it. So let me start with the technology. So if you think of uh, Internet 1.0 as it's basically a web browser where you take you, know, you fire up your laptop, you fire up your web browser, you go to a web page, right? And it's rendered in HTML, and you are interacting, let's say, with your email. And your email, it's like you, you're your web email. It's like, fine, here's my email. Well, that email is stored somewhere in a centralized database. And in between your web browser and in between that database is probably some sort of middleware an API. And that's what we have grown up with since pretty much the beginning of when the internet fired up to what we have now. One of the ways that people are calling this internet 2.0 is 
blockchain technology allows you to do something a little differently. So instead of that centralized database on the back end, now you can have blockchain on the back end. So what it looks like with Internet 2.0 is, um, for example, CryptoKitties is an extremely popular distributed app. I go to the CryptoKitty website with my browser. I see my kitties. I can buy and sell kitties, that sort of thing. Behind it, once I do that, is actually blockchain technology. So instead of the database that is centralized, you have this blockchain technology which is decentralized and in between that web browser experience and in between that blockchain are what are called smart contracts. And smart contracts are basically nothing more than software that basically says, look, you know, if X, then Y. It's like, okay, if you give me a Bitcoin, then Y, I will issue you a CryptoKitty. And, you know, okay, you bought this CryptoKitty, and now it's logged into a blockchain. So let's say if it's your, your email, instead of your email being in a database, all right, your email is just sitting on a blockchain. So people are, are calling that Internet 2.0 because that's a different way of doing. The front end's still the same, right? You're still on your web browser. You're still going, and it's rendered HTML5. It looks just the same to you. But on the back end, with that middleware and that um, with the smart contracts and the blockchain at the end, you have that database now being put into, instead of a database, now you have this decentralized blockchain. So there's all sorts of energy figuring out, you know, how, how do you do that? And there's all sorts of debates on, you know, not everything needs to be on the blockchain. Some things that still make sense to put on the database, other things that make sense to put on the blockchain. The second thing is, you know, remember Internet 1.0 is you had all this energy and you had all this money going in during the dot-com era, and then it crashed. And a lot of bad ideas got swept away and it kind of left the good ideas. It was very educational. So... Pets.com gets nuked, but you still end up with Google and Amazon and that sort of thing. And it really looks at this infrastructure phase right now. It, it has a very bubbly feel to it where there's a lot of um, different chains and different tokens that are out there that you can kind of see uh, some sort of similar Internet 1.0 crash coming or Internet 2.0 happens where uh, a lot of the bad money goes away, the, the bad ideas get swept away, and the good ideas come through. So I, like most people, I, I think we're in some sort of bubble, and there'll be some sort of crash, but I think it's going to be very good and very healthy, just like the Internet, the Internet 1.0 crash was. And so what are privacy coins and stable coins? What's the difference? Yeah, so I talked about a little bit about that. So there's, there's one of the things that, that you'll run into a lot, especially once you start um, – you know, talking about the cryptocurrency. So there's, there's, in, or as far as crypto crime, one is the privacy coins. And the privacy coins are, uh, it's basically, you can have these coins and you can have these digital currencies. And instead of having a public ledger, right, with Bitcoin and Litecoin and some of these other versions where you can mm -hmm. just go and see all the transactions, we're going to make it private. So either we're going to make it private by, and there's a bunch of different ways to do this and, and different uh, ideas uh, bubbling around. You can do something like Monero where it's like, look, it's a private ledger. You can't parse it publicly. There's other privacy coins where it's a public ledger, but they're moving things around so much it makes it really difficult to, to trace. So it essentially provides privacy. So that's what the privacy coins are. And you see the privacy coins becoming, uh, you know, see a lot of it in the dark web, and if, you're, if it's kind of the evil B2B, they want Monero. Um, the other thing that we're seeing a lot now, and a lot of energy behind, are what are called stable coins. So the issue with this kind of first generation, or the stuff that came out 
uh, originally the, the bitcoins and the litecoins and all the different variations is they're not particularly good stores of value. Uh, some of their proponents will say they're great stores of value, but if you look at the price of, of Bitcoin, for example, it's gone from nothing to 20000 to 8000 It can lose an immense amount of value on any given day. It's a terrible idea to price anything in, you know, you're not going to sell a house in Bitcoin. You're not going to say, I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to enter in a contract for, I'm going to sell my house for 100 Bitcoin. Well, 30 days or 60 days from when you close that house, you have no idea what 100 is going to be, right? You could have gotten, you know, when you made that contract, maybe 100 Bitcoin was worth, you know, $100,000. When, when you go 60 days to close on it, maybe now it's $200,000. So because of that instability, it's not a particularly good store of value. It's not a particularly good way to price things. So people have realized this, and it's like, if this is going to be a currency, and this is going to be a digital currency that people are going, the technology that people are going to use for digital currency, it has to be stable. So the price has got to be predictable and it has to be a stable store of value. So how people are solving this problem is there's a bunch of different models to do it, but basically the idea is we're going to create these cryptocurrencies that have these crypto assets that they are pegging their value to something on the outside. They are pegging their value to um, the U.S. dollar, the euro, gold, something where it's very similar to what the gold standard used to be with, with currency, where it's like the value of this currency is going to be... Uh, be attached to um, a dollar or a euro or something like that so that you actually have the predictability. And when you put money in there, it's like a savings account. I put $50,000 into a stable coin, it's going to stay $50,000. So I think that's really what we're going to see more of when it comes to the evolution of cryptocurrencies for day-to-day -day payments. It's going to have to be something like a dollar or a euro where the, the value is relatively stable. So wait, uh, this begs the question, if there's privacy coins like Monero, why would the bad guys want to use Bitcoin then? Because it's, so it's back to being, we're, we're, we're at this infrastructure stage where if you go to um, a, let's say you go to a really popular digital currency exchange like uh, Coinbase, Coinbase is only going to do fiat currency for, I'm going from memory, uh, I think it's Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin Cash. Um, there are not as many exchanges that will take fiat currency and turn it into Monero. So they are still using Bitcoin because it, it's just it's just the leader, right? Getting a getting a victim to do fiat to Bitcoin is much easier than trying to get a victim to go from uh, fiat into Monero. So as much as they would want to use the privacy coins, and I think as the privacy coins become more and more accepted by the general public and more exchanges adopt them, you're going to see bad guys moving off of Bitcoin because Bitcoin's got a bunch of different problems. Um, one of which is, of course, you know, it's not a stable store of value, but the bad guys don't care about that because they can convert it as fast as they can. But it's kind of slow. Like Bitcoin can do about seven transactions per second. Ethereum can do about maybe 15 transactions per second. If you look at something like Visa, which is basically if you're talking about a digital currency and you want to compete with those payment rails, Visa can do – I've seen different – statistics as I'm doing research, but the last research or the last statistic I saw in the last week is Visa is doing about 24,000 transactions per second. So wow. there's an infrastructure issue where they got to get caught up. But yeah, right now Bitcoin's the, the king because everyone can, it's, it's, it's the easiest to get people to convert fiat to Bitcoin. Okay, Eric, we got to take a, a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the Vice President of International Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, Eric Huber. 
You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the Vice President of International and Strategic Initiatives at the National White Collar Crime Center, Eric Huber. So, Eric, we were talking about cybercrime. We were talking about digital currencies and virtual currencies in the first segment of the show. Explain how digital currency exchanges play into all this. I mean, if, if blockchain is all about cutting out intermediaries, then why even deal with a digital currency exchange? So you can, you can cut out the intermediaries if you're on one blockchain, basically on a blockchain's ecosystem. So if I want to send Bitcoin back and forth to somebody, I can do that. I don't need a digital currency exchange to send Bitcoin to somebody using the, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, right? It's decentralized. I have my wallet. I can just hook up to the, the blockchain. I can do transactions on the ledger. Where the digital currency exchanges come into play is if you want to exchange your fiat currency 
into a particular digital currency, or if you want to start moving from one digital currency to another digital currency, you have to start using these digital currency exchanges. So it's very much uh, necessary for uh, taking your fiat currency, let's say your US dollars, and you want to buy Bitcoin, you're going to have to do that through an exchange, or you've got your Bitcoin and you want to turn it to US dollars, you have to use your exchange. So while it is decentralized, while you can cut out, you know, some of the intermediaries, if you want to basically buy stuff in, you know, using normal, you know, standard payment rails, that's going to have to go into fiat currency, and that's where the digital currencies exchanges come into play. So law enforcement is clearly very concerned about cryptocurrencies. Uh, we both have experience in, in law enforcement and have many contacts there. We know that this is a topic of discussion that we hear all the time. What sort of criminal activity is happening with cryptocurrencies? And what are these bad guys doing? So it's actually an incredible amount of diversity. And it's just been interesting kind of watching all the creativity in it. Um, one of the first things that I really noticed, I didn't really notice this as much at the beginning of the year, but I'm noticing it more now. And others, if you follow crypto Twitter, you're starting to see people talk about it. As far as the actual just physical cryptocurrency crime, which is basically things like, you know somebody has cryptocurrency, so you kidnap them or hold them up at gunpoint and you make them transfer uh, cryptocurrency from you know their private key to someplace else. So you're basically using traditional physical crime, you know, holding someone at gunpoint and getting them to cough up uh, cryptocurrency. The other thing I've seen is uh, the the mining technology. So the, the the hardware that you need to do to mine cryptocurrencies is really expensive, and people put a lot of value into that. There's stories of basically bad guys breaking in and stealing the servers to mine cryptocurrency because they don't have to. Now, you know, you steal it. They're not going to pay for it and using it for those purposes. So you have that physical, you know, some people call it the meat space area of crypto crime. That is starting up. Uh, the other one is, and getting back to digital currency exchanges, because if you're going to be involved with uh, cryptocurrency, you're going to have to deal with digital currency exchanges. You're seeing uh, incidents where bad guys will break into a digital currency exchanges and they will start stealing cryptocurrency. You're also seeing cases where insider threat, people who are inside the digital currency exchange are, are bad and they will steal cryptocurrency. Uh, the other thing is, and this has been in the news a lot, quite a bit of ransomware. So they put malware on your machine, probably through a phishing campaign. You click on the link, the malware appears on your machine, it locks up your files and says, hey, you're not getting your files back until you pay me you know, X amount of Bitcoin. And that's why they tend to prefer Bitcoin because they don't want to say, look, send me X amount of Monero because it's a huge pain. It's a lot of friction. It's hard to find digital currency exchanges who do that. So that's one of the reasons why ransomware is still using Bitcoin. What we're seeing now is sort of a trend away from ransomware, and not that's going away, but into what's called um, kind of large crypto jacking. And crypto jacking is basically when you take over someone's computer and you use that computer to start mining a cryptocurrency because the way that some of these cryptocurrencies work is the cryptocurrency comes into creation. It is mined by throwing a bunch of CPU cycles at solving a very difficult math problem. So what the bad guys have decided, like, fine, I don't want to pay all the money and all the electricity to go ahead and mine stuff. I'm just going to send my malware out. I'm going to take control of other people's machines. They can pay the electricity, and they can use the CPU cycles to mine cryptocurrency for me. So that's actually becoming more and more common. 
the other thing we see is you know fraudulent uh, ICOs, right? Initial coin offerings. So one of the ways that you raise money in the cryptocurrency space, you say, okay, I've got this new coin, I have this new token, I will sell it to you early for fiat currency, and you, you know, we'll sell you this, this, this token, and you will pay me this money, and I'll use this to you know, pay my staff and continue my business, and you were hoping that when this token goes live, it's going to increase in value, and you'll be able to sell it or hold it for even more money. Problem is, some of that's just fraud. You know, some of it is, you know, they do these tokens, these initial currency exchanges, they put these flashy websites up saying, "Look, give us the money. You're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get rich quick. You're gonna make a lot of money on it." They take your money and then they just disappear. Uh, quite a bit of that. And the other thing is good old-fashioned money laundering, right? This has the ability, you, you can take fiat currency, you can turn it to cryptocurrency, you can move it from different cryptocurrencies, you can use privacy coins, there's all sorts of things you can do. So it's a very useful tool in laundering money. You know, it's not only from um, money that is stolen, let's say, from the digital currency exchanges, which you're going to have to launder it before you turn it to fiat currency, but also just normal crime. It is now a tool, let's say drug money, it is now a tool for bad guys to add to their money laundering tool set. So it's increasingly uh, the creativity of what's being used in uh, crypto crime is uh, basically just uh, unlimited at this point, basically to people's imagination. So what's this I hear about? What's this, what's this 51% attack? What's that? The 51% attack is a really cool bit of crypto crime. And let me see if I can explain it. It's easier to do it in with slides, but it's actually really cool. So with certain blockchains where the mining and the creation of the cryptocurrency is through CPUs, what happens is you have all these different transactions the miners grab these transactions, they solve a very difficult mathematical equation based on these transactions and some other uh, variables that go in. And if the first miner to solve this transaction gets to add all these transactions, the next block, to the blockchain. So what do they get for that? Well, they get the, um, you get the, all the, the transaction fees for all those transactions and you're rewarded by a certain amount of that cryptocurrency. So great. So you have this going on and you have, you know, one block being added and the competition starts again, another block being added. And this block is, you know, as these blocks are created, let's say we've got 10 blocks on our blockchain, right? And we've got 10, let's say 10 nodes on the network, right? 10 different nodes that have this blockchain. It's an extremely small blockchain. And that ledger goes out to all those different um, devices. So what the 51% attack is, is that basically it's a way to do double spending. And the rule basically is he who creates, if you have 51% of the hashing capacity of a blockchain network, not necessarily the devices, you can actually control the network and you can actually do a double spend. So the way it works is, let's say you've got the good blockchain. Let's say you know it started at one and it's gone all the way to you've got 10 blocks. And what happens is the bad guys go, okay, we're going to do our 51% attack. And they get a bunch of, they get enough CPUs, they get enough hashing power where they go, okay, we're going to take a copy of that block and we're going to take it on the side and we're going to go to the side and we're going to disconnect from the network and we're going to start mining and start adding blocks. We're going to do it faster than 
the original blockchain is, is adding to it. So what happens is, let's say, you know, the normal good blockchain is 10, right? And they do the hashing and they add the 11th block. And the bad guys goes, okay, that 11th block is where I'm going to buy my new Lamborghini. And what they do is they, they use that normal blockchain, right? It's just the good blockchain. And they, they send, um, you know, let's say X amount of Bitcoin, let's say 100 Bitcoin to the Lamborghini dealer or any commodity they want. Let's say just cash or whatever. And they get their, they get their cash or they get their product, they get their Lamborghini or whatever. And now it's, it's in their possession. Well, what they were doing on the side, let's say we had these 10 computers and they're all equally doing the hashing and, and they're, they're you know, working on that 12th blockchain. What was going on on the side is they have enough hashing power and say enough under their control where they created another duplicate blockchain, right? So they created their own 11th block. They had 10 blocks, they had 11th block. And they also have so much hashing power that they've added, let's say, a 12th block before the good blockchain has done that themselves. So now they have basically, they took all this hashing power and they created a longer block. And what happens is the way the consensus works with cryptocurrency is the biggest blockchain is going to win. So what happens, like, okay, the good blockchain has got 11 blocks to it right now. And I've got my, you know, my, my transaction or I got my money or my car or whatever on that 11th blockchain. I have you know, rented or stolen or done enough hashing power where I've created a blockchain that's got 12 right now. So what happens is they reconnect to the network and now the network's like, wait, what's going on here? I got a blockchain here that's 11 blocks and that's fine. And I got a blockchain here that's got 12 blocks and we disagree on what this 11th block should look like. So what happens is these networks is the person, basically the longest block wins and basically the longest block is what's going to be created by the most hashing power. So what, what happens in these cases, it's like, okay, the, the authoritative block that we're going to use is that long blockchain, right? The evil blockchain. It's got 12 blocks to it. The network that is pushing that 12 blockchain, it's got more hashing power than the one that's behind the, the good block with the 11 blockchain. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take that 11th block and that 12th block. That blockchain is now the good blockchain. So what happens to that old 11th block that actually had, let's say, you know, the, the Lamborghini purchase or the, the, uh, uh, the cash purchase? What happens is all those transactions basically go back into... Um, basically into limbo, right, where they have to be mined again. So now they're out floating. What happens is, fine, the, 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 those transactions will actually get, get picked up by the new network as part of the mining, but what happens is that one transaction that was used for evil, you know, getting the currency or the Lamborghini, what happens is if those transactions, if a transaction has not been picked up by the network in 72 hours, like with Bitcoin, it goes away. So what the miners make sure is like, fine, not only are we putting our blockchain um, as now the new blockchain, we're going to make sure that that one transaction does not get picked up. So what happens is it's like, okay, everything that happened in those one through 10 before that chain happened, that works just great. Now, you've done it in such a way where you've thrown all this hashing power, you've done all this sort of work, you've basically done a double spend where you were able to get your currency, you are able to get your car, and you were to use this hashing power to basically inflict your evil blockchain on the good blockchain, and now that's the dominant one, and now you've stolen your cash or your car. 
So with all this emerging innovative and disruptive technology coming out, I mean, what, what are we going to do? I mean, how is law enforcement going to investigate crypto crimes? How's that so, work? So this is, there's, there's basically four different um, segments to it, right? So there's basically, this, there's the digital forensics page, right? We talked about mobile device forensics before. Because these have, um, you have wallets and you have all these private keys and all this digital evidence, all this is going to be sitting on computers and on mobile devices. So the mobile devices are going to be very key to these investigations. So mobile device forensics is going to be a big deal. You're going to have... Um, you're going to have uh, detectives basically having all these mobile devices going across, you know, the digital forensics detectives, all these mobile devices are going to be going across their desks. And they're going to be asked, look, pull all the, all the cryptocurrency evidence you can out there. Pull off the wallets, pull off the public keys, the private keys, that sort of thing. So because it's a digital medium, anything that transacts at that medium is going to be pretty key. So that's one pillar of it, which the di traditional digital forensics. The other part of it is going to be open source investigation. Things like going onto the dark web and saying, okay, you know, because you need to figure out who do these transactions are going to, because if you go to a public blockchain and you, you parse, let's say, a Bitcoin transaction, you're just seeing one really long alphanumeric number sending currency to another really long alphanumeric number. You don't know who that is. Is it on an exchange? Is it doing a ransomware? You don't really know. So part of what you can do is for open source investigation, you can go online and say, okay, you know, this particular address, I see this on the dark web. I see this being advertised as, hey, you know, if you want to buy drugs or whatever, you send your money to this address. All right, well, that's a key piece of information. And that sort of like, oh, who's that address associated with? It is a particular drug cartel? Is it a particular user? So open source investigation is going to be a big deal because, again, it's a digital currency and things like dark markets and all these sort of things are going to come into play. The really big, really interesting technology right now that's um, going to be real key to this is, is it, I'm not really sure what you call them. I, I kind of call them the advanced crypto forensics tools. They're kind of the really value-added blockchain explorers. There's four really big people in the market right now, uh, Cypher Trace, Chainalysis, Neutrino, Elliptic. What these folks do is, and they've really been targeting large financial institutions and large law enforcement, increasingly they're more interested, they're interested in um, trying to get into the state and local markets too because they know these folks are going to need this. But basically they take the, uh, the blockchain exploring and they do quite a bit of value add to it where they're doing research on wallets and exchanges and they do things like uh, visualization of transactions. So let's say you, you, you take a transaction and you put it into a free blockchain explorer like Blockseer or any of these like uh, Block Explorer, anything that you can go out there and you can just get right now, you know, going through Google, you're just going to see transactions that are saying, okay, here's a transaction number, here's when it's done, here's the amount, here's from one you know, large alpha number to another one. When you start using these tools, they've done so much value add and research, you can see it's like, oh, no, this actually came from a cryptocurrency exchange, Coinbase. And they'll, you'll see when you use these tools, it's like, oh, no, this came from you know, Coinbase and this went into Alphabay. So you, they add an immense amount of value where now you as a police officer can go, great, you know, before when I was just looking at the public blockchain, I just had these numbers going to these other numbers. Now I can see, no, this is actually a transaction going from Coinbase to, let's say, Alphabay, which is blocked on. It's like, all right, well, I'm not going to get anything out of Alphabay, although that's very interesting because now I know it's a, a transaction that was probably nefarious. Now I'm going to go to Coinbase and I'm going to serve them with legal process and say, hey, who's the person behind this? 
and then you can go talk to them because the digital currency exchanges, especially here in the U.S., fall under the uh, uh, the Banking Secrecy Act uh, laws. So they are filing suspicious activity reports. They're doing KYC. They're doing uh, you know they're identifying who their customers are. So that gives something. Uh, law enforcement officers can deal with very similar to what they're doing now with traditional financial investigation methods, which actually is the fourth piece that to, to doing uh, crypto crime, which is, you know, how are you going? You're still, it's still, it's still like when we were patrol officers, right? It's still that just basic law enforcement stuff, traditional financial investigation methods, you know, doing your legal process, doing your investigations, talking to sources, you know, doing interviews, that sort of thing. When you go do a search warrant, you know, now you're looking for you're looking for private key addresses, public key addresses. You're looking for you know USB keys that you turn over your digital forensics people. So, even physical investigation, even though this is all digital, you're still going to be looking for. There's a lot of stuff written down, recovery keys, that sort of thing that you're going to want that's really going to help your investigations. So do you have any predictions about future crypto crimes and how that's going to, you know, how, where is this going to take us and, and how this is all going to go down in the future considering your job? I, I think so. Uh, and and we're, I, I, it, it's interesting because it's developing so, so quick. But one of the things that it's happened within, you know, not too long ago, a lot of what was going on with, let's say, human trafficking and child exploitation, there was a lot of uh, that sort of activity that was being centralized on Backpage, and that was basically being used as a conduit between people who wanted to purchase those sort of services and people who were selling it, and there was a lot of excitement, um, and law enforcement used Backpage as a... Uh, uh, it was actually a pretty good law enforcement tool because everything was centralized. The bad guys were there. It's like, all right, the law enforcement officers knew the bad guys were there. And then I've been doing a lot of speaking at child exploitation type conferences. And you talk to police officers now, they're like, yay, Backpage got shut down because Backpage got shut down. They're like, well, crud, Backpage got shut down. Because <laughs> now, now it's like, well, now they're all over the place. So one of the things that I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to see is sort of an evil distributed back page that can't get shut down. I think that's going to be a model for, um, this is great technology, right? It can be used for good and also be used for evil. So remember I talked about Internet 1.0. It's like, all right, well, back page is Internet 1.0. There's a lot of evil going on and using databases to keep track of the evil and then law enforcement takes it out. So I think the next thing up will be uh, stuff like that where it's decentralized where there isn't a centralized organization or centralized server that law enforcement can um, take over. I think we'll probably see more, you know, some more street level involvement because we're already seeing, you know, the, 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 the holdups and the physical crimes in crypto. But I know you and I, when we were at, you know, the, the bank at JP Morgan, you know, we were seeing the transition where even some of the drug criminals were moving to things like the IRS scams, right? Because they realized there's a lot of money to be made here and the risk isn't that much. So I'm wondering how much of that is going to um, go into crypto where it's like, okay, we can steal stuff. You know, somebody has crypto, we can just, you know, point a gun at them and make them. And so I, I think you may see um, some of that moving on, especially as the drug war gets more violent and uh, there's more incarceration. Uh, bad guys will look at you know, less things that cause them less friction and things that have less chances of them going to jail for a very long time. So who knows? We'll see. But it's, um, I think as the, as some of these drug gangs went into financial crime, I think you'll probably see some of them moving to some of the crypto stuff. 
So how does our audience keep up on blockchain developments as we go forward? So it's, it, there's a lot of noise out there. So what I'm kind of telling people is um, one of the really best web websites out there uh, that I recommend people go to is um, a guy by the name of Jameson Lopp put together this really great uh, website. Uh, you go to bitcoin.cc. And he's got quite a bit of links in there, things like explain to me Ethereum like I'm five, right? Explain to me Ethereum like I'm 15. So depending on whatever level you're at, that's actually a really good way that has a bunch of different links to a bunch of different things. Um, Coindesk is a, is a digital media outfit. Uh, it's coindesk.com. That's one of the places I really try and keep up on um, news in the area. Um, Coin Center, uh, coincenter.org. That's an advocacy, policy, educational. Uh, they're you know they're a nonprofit. They're advocating for um, basically regulatory, basically some you know, regulatory stability and regulatory sanity when it comes to this sort of thing. But they do quite a bit of uh, uh, education stuff too. You can follow me on Twitter. You know Eric J Huber. I'm on Twitter. Um, but once you start kind of connecting to, you start connecting to like Coindesk and Coin Center, you'll see them talking about different people and you can start following different people. Uh, Laura Shin is somebody I really recommend people follow. Uh, she does a bunch of really good uh, content. If you go to Laura Shin, her last name is spelled S-H-I-N. Follow her on Twitter. Um, so crypto Twitter is really interesting. You'll find uh, a lot of really good educational stuff and a lot of just like just abject crypto nonsense where people are talking about <laughs> how cryptocurrency is going to, you know, bring in, you know, new era of peace and get the crabgrass out of your lawn and how we're going to replace all the governments. And, but there's a lot of really good stuff there too. And it's actually good to see how people are thinking and how people are, how this industry is developing and the direction things go. So I get a lot really out of Twitter. So I, I really recommend that. So Eric, it was great having you on the show. I miss the old times, brother. Oh, I know. I working with you. It was fun. Yeah, I it really was good. That. But it was a great experience, and I appreciate everything you've ever done for me. Hey, so when I get down to Florida, we got to get together. I don't want to miss yes. you on my next trip, but uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you come on again often. Okay, I would be happy to do that. So we run out of time, folks. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.